Hebrews chapter number 4 tonight. I'd like to read three verses very quickly to you and then have a word of prayer. Verse number 14, the Bible says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's read verse 16 once more and then we'll pray. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your blessings upon us tonight. Thank You for the privilege to gather in Your house and to worship. Lord, thank You for a Bible tonight that's perfect and inspired. We don't have to question, we don't have to wonder what Your Word says tonight. We have it right before us. I pray, Lord, that You'd speak to each heart, that You'd comfort us and encourage us and convict us in a way that would bring glory to You. You know what each heart needs tonight, Lord. We're asking You to meet those needs. Pray that You'd fill me with the Holy Ghost. Give me the unction that makes preaching easy, makes listening easy tonight, Lord. And I pray that it would glorify You. Thank You for loving us. We love You, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to center upon the use of this word grace tonight. We've been preaching a little bit here lately on the idea of grace. And there's a lot of different definitions that men try to ascribe to grace. Uh, most famous, I think, is probably the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And I believe that that is a, an inexhaustive or unexhaustive definition of the grace of God. And Second uh, Corinthians, I believe it's 8 and 9, gives us God's concise definition of grace. It says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes became He poor, that through His poverty ye might be made rich. When we speak of grace, what we're essentially talking about is all the riches and all the blessings and all of the standing and all of the privilege that we have as a result of Christ's poverty. We're speaking about the truth and the fact that we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that we're seated together with Him in heavenly places. We're speaking about the fact that when God sees us, He doesn't just see the blood, He sees His Son when He sees us. You say, well, preacher, what's the difference tonight? Well, the difference is this. If he just saw the blood, he might just see us as forgiven. And it's a wonderful thought to think that God would forgive our sins. And he does forgive our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just see me as a fallen but forgiven human being. But he sees me as accepted in the beloved. He sees me as rank with his son, Jesus Christ. He sees me as precious in his sight. That's what grace does tonight. Grace puts us in heavenly places. Grace puts us in the heart of God. Grace puts us as not only forgiven, but justified. And I want to think about this word grace and the idea of the grace of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there is a place of grace in this verse. Notice it in verse number 16. It says, come boldly unto the throne of grace. I'm glad there's a place we can go to get help tonight, aren't you? I'm thankful there's a place we can go to find grace this evening. But we see a purpose of grace in this passage. It says that we may obtain mercy. And I'm thankful that when we come to this place of grace, though we do not deserve it, though we deserve hell, though we deserve the just uh, deserts of our sin and of our unrighteousness, I'm glad that God looks at us not just with grace but with mercy also. 
I'm thankful that when justice called my name, that the mercy of God answered. You hear people complain all the time, say, well, God's just not fair. Friend, you better be glad that God's not fair. If God was fair, we'd be in hell tonight. If God was fair, we'd get exactly what we deserve. We'd be in hell tonight, hopeless and helpless. But then we also see the provision of His grace. And this is what I want to think about tonight. It says, and find grace to help in time of need. You know, the psalmist said, I am poor and needy. And I think most of us, especially in this economy, somebody say amen, could say with the psalmist, I'm poor and needy. But he's not just talking about financial poverty when he says, I'm poor and needy. He's saying, I'm poor in spirit. I'm poor in courage. I'm poor in boldness. I'm poor in long-suffering. I'm poor in loving-kindness. The psalmist is saying, my poverty knows no bounds. I am poor and I have need of things from the Lord. You know, that's you and me tonight. We have need of things from God. And I'm thankful that our God is not just interested in how much... I mean, I'm glad that He is interested in how much we can praise Him and honor Him, but that's not just what He's interested in tonight. God's not just interested in what He can get from us. God's interested, too, in what He can give us. And I'm thankful it's not just a one-way street, but that God can give us grace to help in these times of need. And I thought about grace and the idea of five different aspects of it. And I want to preach to you on this truth tonight. Grace for every hour. Do you know that life is a mixed bag of trial and triumph? Uh, Life is a mixed bag, it seems, of vanity and victory. If you live long enough, you're going to have some happy times. You know, I think about it every time that I come through the door, and this is just the blessing of being at the age that I'm at and at the stage in life that I'm at. And many of you, you've had times like this, and you know what I'm talking about. Boy, there's just nothing more calming and comforting and soothing. There's nothing that can turn a bad day into a good day. There's nothing that can turn discouragement into encouragement, like going through the door and hearing that little laughter of a child. And what a blessing it is. And I I love it. I've still not figured out why he likes me so much, but he seems to be fond of me. And you come through the door and he's all smiles and what a blessing and what an encouragement that he is to my heart. And there's days that you're going to have times like that. You're going to have blessed times. You're going to have times with friends and family when things are going to go well. But you know, even in those times, you need grace. You need grace to do the right thing in those times. You need grace to glorify Jesus Christ in those times. Uh, You know, if we didn't have grace during those times, we may have all the blessings in the world, but it may puff us up, and we may be kind of like in uh, uh, the book, I believe it's of Obadiah, where it speaks of the Edomites, that they had nested in lofty places like eagles. They had been lifted up and haughty and prideful, and God had to abase them. And it's grace that keeps us humble in those times. But there's also going to be times of tragedy and difficulty. And I've had some of those times in my life, and we're not going to sit here and compare who's had a worse time and who's got a more sorry story, because there'd always be somebody with one worse than you and one worse than me. But suffice it to say that when we come to these difficult times in our life, I'm sure thankful that there's grace to meet those needs as well. I want to give you five different aspects of grace tonight. It's all the same grace, but I'm thankful that it meets these needs in these particular times. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter number 6. John, chapter number 6. And I want to speak to you for just a moment on the idea of convicting grace. Do you know that the grace of God, it's all been grace. Brother Bill sang this song on uh, Friday morning, and I've had it actually on my heart for a long time, where it speaks all of grace from birth to glory. And it's all been grace in our lives. It's all been things we did not deserve. It's all been more than we should have gotten. Is that? I mean, that's as plain as I can put it. The fact that we draw a breath, that's grace. 
The fact that we live and breathe and have our being in God, that, that's grace tonight. And everything that we see and everything we experience is always more than what we deserve. But in the life of the believer, I believe that grace really begins to operate and work at the moment of conviction. Now, there's no question that when I look back at my life, the, the hand of God was in my life long before I ever felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God was still moving and God was being gracious. But the effectual grace of God, or the grace that works inside, the grace that affects our hearts and touches who we are, for the sinner begins here. Do you know that the Bible never says one time that the Lord's going to answer the prayers of the lost? There's only one prayer that the lost man can pray and expect an answer from God, and that's when he cries out and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, the lost man cannot expect the blessings of God. Now, he has some of the blessings of God. But when the relationship of grace really begins to take place, is at the moment when he is convicted through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. Listen to what the Bible says in John chapter 6 and verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said... Now, some of you are saying, well, what had they heard? Well, Christ had just been speaking to them, and he said that if you're going to be part of me, and if you're going to know me, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they didn't like that. This was a hard saying to them. Do you know that's still a hard saying today? When you start telling people that they have to partake in the death of Jesus Christ to have salvation, people don't like that. They don't mind a crossless religion. They don't mind a bloodless religion. But now you start preaching the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, and there's an offense that goes along with the cross of Christ. And this is the offense that's taking place. They said, this isn't hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples murmured at it, He said unto them, doth this offend you? What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where He was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray Him, speaking of Judas. And He said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto Me except it were given unto him of My Father. Now, as Christ is preaching to this group of uh, so-called disciples, there's some of them that look at it and they hear the Word of God that's being given. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with the Word of God. You notice that Christ is very careful to say that the Spirit quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. And He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He says, the words that I'm speaking to you can produce life. They can give life. And yet here are a group of people that though they hear these wonderful words of life, as P.P. Bliss wrote, uh, wrote about wonderful words of life, still they hear them and turn them away. And Christ says to them that you can't come to me except it is given to you of the Father. Now, what is it? What is he speaking about when he says it? He's not saying that, uh, that I'm going to make you come to me. By the way, this is important to know because there's a lot of people believe that Christ is saying that I'm going to make you come to me. Never once is He saying I have uh, predestined some to hell and some to heaven. That's not what He's saying here. When He says it is given unto you of my Father, what He's saying is an understanding of the words that I'm speaking to you. Can I put it as simply as I know how without going into a big theological discourse? What Christ is saying here is He's saying the reason that you don't understand is because it's not been revealed to you yet. 
Have you ever witnessed to someone and it seemed like you witnessed and you witnessed and you witnessed and they had a head knowledge of it? I mean, they could recite it back to you. They knew what you were saying. But it seems like it had no effect on their heart whatsoever. I've experienced this in my life when I've witnessed people. And I would go a step further and say that my life is a testimony to this truth. Because I grew up in a gospel-preaching church. I mean, I grew up in a church that uh, they preached the gospel, they preached it simple, they preached it plain, and they preached it often. They made known to me the truth that I was a lost sinner. But for ten years of my life as a little boy, that message went in one ear, went out the other. It meant absolutely nothing. If you had asked me as a little boy, do you know that you have to be saved to go to heaven? I would have said, yes, sir. If you had said, do you know uh, that if you die without Christ, you'll go to hell? I would have said, yes, sir. If you had said, do you know that Christ died for your sins on Calvary? I would have said, yes, sir. But still I was lost as a ball in high weeds. But on December 1st, 1997, all of that changed. And I, I really believe in the, in the sovereign hand of God. Now, I'm not saying I believe in predestination, so don't misquote me tonight. I'm not saying I believe God chooses some to heaven or some to hell. I'm saying I believe God is sovereign. Meaning I believe that though He is not controlling everything, He is in control of everything. And I believe that God had me to be alone when I got saved for a specific reason. I believe He was teaching me a truth, and it's a truth I've carried with me for my entire life. And that was this, that when the Holy Ghost speaks truth to your heart, that's when things change. Everyone else had told me. And I'm not saying that they were wrong for telling me. You ought to tell people. You can't tell the wrong person the gospel. Everybody needs to hear it. Either they've not been saved and they need to hear it, or they have been saved and they'll rejoice in hearing it. You can't tell the gospel to a wrong person. But what I'm saying is this. It did not dawn on me. I hadn't like the prodigal son came to myself yet. It was not real to me until God made it real to me. This is the first operation of grace that takes place in the heart of a believer. We can have a chicken-egg discussion tonight about which comes first. Uh, is, it, you know, is, it, is it faith or is it conviction or is it faith or is it conviction? And I'm going to answer that to you tonight. It's neither faith nor conviction that comes first. It's the Word of God that comes first. That's why God is not choosing some to heaven and choosing some to hell. You see, and I don't mean to make the gospel a very mechanical thing, but the Bible does say that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What Christ was trying to do was bring conviction into their hearts through the work of the Word of God. And that's how it, that's how it takes place. It's only through the Word of God that we can respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have the capacity without the work of the Word of God in our heart and life and the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart and life. We don't have the capacity to respond to God. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Because we don't even know we need to respond to God until God makes us aware that we need to. I mean, that's why you talk to people and witness and witness and witness and they just look at you like a calf staring at a new gate. They don't know what you mean. They don't get it. They don't understand. It's because it's not real to them yet. You say, preacher, should I give up? No, you shouldn't give up. You shouldn't give up because the more the Word of God penetrates their heart, the better, the better likelihood that they'll become receptive to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was grace that convicted me that Christ had died for my sins, that He had, that he had made atonement, or the New Testament word is propitiation. He had washed away my sins. And if I'd only uh, call upon Him and turn towards Him and uh, quit leaning upon myself, that He'd save me from my sins. This is convicting grace. But I see not only convicting grace, I want to read another passage to you, and I won't have you turn there. 
Most of you will begin to quote it in your heart and in your mind with me when I begin to quote it. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I see convicting grace in John chapter number 6, but in Ephesians chapter number 2, I see saving grace. Now, it's the same grace. I'm not saying there's all these different types of grace. I'm saying that grace functions in all these different ways. And could I say that when I got saved, it had absolutely nothing to do with my works in any way, shape, fashion, or form. The Bible says clearly, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The Bible says that when we endeavor through uh, the what the Bible calls circumcision, which was Gentile believers were trying to uh, be circumcised and put themselves under the law to keep the law. And this was their attempt at salvation by works. And Christ said, uh, that, or Paul said to those of you that are circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Uh, said that whosoever uh, should keep the whole law, uh, that he has fallen from grace. Some of you are saying that term fallen from grace, does that mean lose your salvation? No, that's not what it means. What it's saying is this, grace is a higher way than the law ever was. Grace gives you something that law never could. By the way, the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ, that shouldn't be an excuse to lower living. That ought to be an encouragement to higher living. We weren't given grace so that we could live out from under the law. We were given grace so that we could live above the law. Except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, is what Christ said. Our righteousness should not be diminished because of our liberty in Christ. It should be embellished because of our liberty in Jesus Christ. But when I got saved, it had nothing to do with my works. The works of the law couldn't justify. The works of my flesh could not justify. What did Christ just say in John chapter 6? He said that the flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh and the law do not have the capacity to justify a man. But only by the grace of Jesus Christ could I be justified. Only by ceasing to do it my way and myself, and casting myself on the cross of Calvary and on the blessed Son of God, only there could I find redemption. This is the truth that Augustus M. Toplady was trying to convey when he wrote Rock of Ages and he said, Could my uh, tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. He said, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He was trying to convey that there's nothing that we could do that would atone for our sins. When he says, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer, no. He's saying, I couldn't attain salvation uh, simply through my contrition, and I couldn't attain salvation simply through my dedication. Only through the cross of Calvary could I be redeemed. We live in a day abundant with other Gospels. Or as Paul calls them in the book of Galatians, another Gospel. Any Gospel that seeks to mingle works and grace, Paul said, that's another Gospel. And he said, I don't care if it's the biggest preacher in town. I don't care if it's the guy that's got the pearliest, whitest teeth on the television. I don't care if it's a denominational leader. I don't care if it's a political leader. Paul went a step further and he said, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven that preaches another gospel to you. He said, let him be accursed. This gospel of grace is the only gospel that Christ has room for in this church age. It's the only gospel that can save. And it must, must, must be by grace. This is a wonderful truth. We ought to be carrying it to people. We ought to be telling people this. <laughs> that you don't have to work. You don't have to work. It's not your baptism. It's not your church membership. It's not your good works. None of those things can avail you. I've found that this truth 
is particularly offensive to people trying to work their way to heaven. I've been out and I've knocked on doors tons of times. And I found this, that I've had more people order me off their property and try uh, to tell me they'll call the police over telling them that they cannot lose their salvation than over telling them that they're on their way to hell if they've never accepted Christ. You say, why does that offend people? It offends people because it cheapens their works. Shows them that their works aren't sufficient. You're telling them that all that they do, that all the charity, that all the effort, that all the service, that all the ministry, that all the work, that all the dedication is not enough and they can't handle it. They say, surely my good works must be enough. But no, your good works will never be enough. It's only saving grace. Only saving grace that can avail us. It's grace that saves us. We see saving grace. Listen to what the Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It does not say the grace of God which bringeth salvation to all men. It's not what it says. You say, why does that matter, preacher? Because all men are not saved. Universalism is never found one time in the Word of God. This idea that we are all the children of God, that's never found in the entire Word of God. We are all the creations of God, but we are not all the children of God. Christ looked at the Pharisees and said, You are of your father, the devil. And those that have not accepted Christ as their Savior, they only have their first birth. And their first birth makes them a child of sin, a child of hell, and a child of the devil. They must be born again to receive a new birth, to receive a new family, to receive a new home and a new heavenly father. So it does not say the grace of God which bringeth salvation of all, to all men. It says which bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Christ said, uh, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And He said, I've been lifted up. And the cross of Calvary is free to any and all that will come unto Him in repentance, calling upon Him. But it says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, oh, that's important, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, notice this, we should live. Now, it's going to give us some uh, adjectives here. Uh, Here in a moment, it's going to say soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. But I want us to focus, and if we could, and I don't believe I'm doing damage to the Scriptures. I hope you have a Bible right in front of you. You know I'm not trying to take anything away or add anything there too. But let me read that with some gaps in it for emphasis. For the grace of God teaching us that we should live soberly, righteously and godly. Could I say that we see in this passage living grace? Living grace. This is grace that teaches us how we ought to live. That's what the Bible says here. Do you know that once we get saved, grace does not end when we get off our knees after pleading a sinner's prayer, whatever you want to call it, after calling on Christ as our Savior. Grace does not end there. Grace continues through our entire life. Let me make a statement. I want you to get this. Grace does not just cause us to shout. It causes us to live differently. There's a lot of people that they, they've got what you might call a shallow shout. And they'll shout and they'll glory and they'll hallelujah and they'll do a backflip and they'll run an aisle. But they won't ever live for Jesus Christ. They're looking for the bubbly good time. And listen, I'm not against shouting. You know me well enough. You want me to, I'll shout. Glory! There, I proved it. I'm not against shouting. I'm not, I'm not against being emotional. God made us as emotional creatures. But what I'm saying is this. Grace is not simply there 
uh, to cause us to shout or to praise or to worship. It's there to change the way we live. Grace has that capacity. It teacheth us uh, that we should live uh, soberly, righteously, and godly. Boy, those are three adjectives that are not very popular in this world that we live in. Soberly, righteously, and godly. Those are three things that the flesh does not find fun or appealing. But those are three things that we, in response to the work of the Spirit of God in our life, in shedding grace through our life, we will be transformed to, uh, to show those things forth before a lost and dying world. When a person is really experiencing the grace of God in their life, they're going to live cleaner. They're going to live more faithful, more dedicated. We do a lot of talking today, you know. We do. We do a lot of talking today. We live in a society of words and a society of ideas and a society that is not much dedicated to action and to living a certain way. We live in a society when it's sufficient just to say you're a Christian, but not to live like one. We live in a society where it seems to be sufficient to say you love God, but to not live like you love God. Or to say you love the church, but not live like you love the church. Or to say that you're thankful for your salvation, but not live like you're thankful for your salvation. And I'm saying this, grace, when it's working in your life, it won't do you that way. It'll change the way that you live. You say, how is this effectual? Well, it's effectual in a lot of ways. I'm just going to name a couple here. One of them is that through the grace, or in other words, the riches and blessing that we have because of Christ's death on Calvary. You know what that is? You know what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit of God? Hey, I know I preach this a hundred times, but it's good and we need to hear it again. Uh, the Bible says about the Holy Spirit of God in Ephesians chapter number 1, that He is the earnest of our redemption uh, until the redemption of the purchased thing. He is the down payment of what heaven's going to be. You know, the Bible says in John chapter number 7, uh, Christ spoke about living waters. And John gives a little commentary for us, and it's God giving it through John. But John says, this spake he of the Holy Ghost, which was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. When Christ died for our sins, the Bible says that He uh, descended into the lower parts of the earth and that He ascended upon high, and He carried, He held captivity captive. And when He did that, the Bible says He purchased gifts for all men. What are those gifts? Well, it goes on to tell us these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God is the dispensary of the grace of God in the life of the believer. And so when we're walking in the Holy Spirit of God, it changes the way that we live. It'll cause us to not want any of this rottenness of the world. You remember the first time you realized that what used to please you didn't please you anymore? Do you remember the first time you realized that what used to satisfy you didn't satisfy you anymore? You remember when you longed for a drink from a better fountain than what the world could provide? That was the grace of God teaching you. But then I think there's another way that it's effectual, and that is this. God shows us grace when we've sinned and messed up and shows us where we've done wrong and how to get right. I'm thankful that when I've done wrong, God doesn't leave me in the dark to figure out what it is on my own. But He, through the convicting power of the Holy Ghost, bears witness with my spirit and shows me where I've sinned against Him. I'm thankful I don't have to wonder if I've sinned. I have the Word of God and the Spirit of God to guide and to show me how I've sinned. That's the grace of God teaching us. We see living grace in this passage. I want to give you another one in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Many of you know what I'm about to read. Paul speaks of a time in his life. Most commentators believe it was when he was left for dead outside of Lystra. I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. That very well could be. We don't know for sure. But it certainly would fit the time frame. And uh, he speaks about being caught up into the third heaven. Seeing great visions, things that could not be uttered, things that God said, Paul, you need to put your pen down when you think about those things because man's not ready for them yet. And the Bible says that because he was... Uh, uh, well, I'll read it to you. I don't want to misquote it. In verse 7 of Second Corinthians chapter 12, he says, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh." the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Now, we don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. I, I, a lot of people believe, and I think this may be true, that it was an eye disease called ophthalmalia. And it caused very, very degenerative, painful vision loss. That's why at the end of uh, Paul's life, when he would sign a letter, just as he did with the letter to the church at Galatia, he said, I, Paul, have written this with my own hand. And that was significant because many times he would dictate his letters. He wanted them to know that he had written it because it was difficult for him to write. Whatever this thorn is, God leaves it uh, very vague to us. And there's a reason for that because you'll have thorns, I'll have thorns, we'll all have trials in life. Paul says, I had this thorn. Well, nothing worse than a thorn that you can't figure out either. That's where Paul was at. If Paul was praying for God to take it away, then in Paul's mind there was no reason God shouldn't have taken it away. One of the greatest difficulties in life is when we don't understand what God's doing. We have to trust Him anyway. Paul says, I prayed three times. You say, well, that's not that many. Well, you don't pray like Paul does. <laughs> Neither do I. For Paul, that meant, this was a man that him and Timothy, they sang praises at night and God shook a jailhouse, sent an earthquake. When Paul prayed, he got through. And three times he knocked on heaven's door. Three times he went to the throne room and asked God to take it away. But it says in verse number 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in infirmities and in reproaches, in necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. As we read this passage, it's easy sometimes to miss what Paul is is telling us here. There is a distinct attitude change that takes place between verse number 8 and verse number 9. And you say, what changed Paul's life? What changed his perspective? I'll tell you what did grace change his perspective. We see in this passage suffering grace. We're going to suffer at times in our life. We're going to suffer without understanding at times in our life. This is where Paul was at. And Paul, you see him in verse number 8, and he's storming the throne room, and he's asking for this help. And you know, sometimes help don't come like we expect it. And he's asking God, he's saying, take it away, take it away, take it away, take it away. But in verse number 9, we see that God answers. And by the way, the answer is the grace in this passage. Get that tonight. The answer was the grace, and grace was the answer. What changed was God revealed to Paul, not why he had to suffer, not when it would be taken away but that there was a purpose in his suffering. He says, my grace 
is sufficient for thee. Paul says, I will therefore, <laughs> I will therefore rather glory in mine infirmities. That's not the man that was speaking in verse 8. That's not the man that was speaking in verse 8. That's not the man that besought the Lord three times. That's not the man that saw this as a messenger of Satan that was buffeting him. That's not the same man in verse number 9. He says, I will gladly bear this, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's a change that only grace can do. And that's something, listen, some of you are thinking tonight, preacher, this is awful ambiguous, I don't understand what you're saying. That's because we all have a tough time really trying to figure this grace thing out. But I know there's a place of grace. And I know that there's a purpose for coming there. And I know there's a provision of it when you get there. I know there's a storehouse of His grace. I can't give you the grace that you need. I don't have a throne room of grace. I don't have it. I'm not able. I'm not your high priest. But there is a high priest that can give you what you need tonight. We see suffering grace, and I'll give you one last thing and I'll be done. Paul's speaking again in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the last letter he would write. His pen would be silenced shortly after by Nero's chopping block. And he's writing to young Timothy, his son in the faith. Now listen to what he says. By the way, Paul said several times, throughout his life, Paul said, I'm ready several times, and he was never ready. He said, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to do that. And he was never ready. But when he says, I'm ready, here he is. He says, for I'm now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. We've seen convicting grace, saving grace, living grace, suffering grace. But I still believe there's a thing that the Bible teaches called dying grace. Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand. He's not under a delusion. He knows what's going to happen and he's made peace with that. God's revealed to him. God's settled it in his heart. He knows he's going to die. He knows that he's going to be beheaded. He's awaiting in prison. We don't know how much Paul knew, but we knew that he knew that his time, the time of his departure was at hand. But listen with the calm resolve. He says, for I'm now ready. Listen to how he says it, to be offered. To be, to be offered. He doesn't see this as violent hands taking him and throwing him down on a chopping block. He doesn't see this as the cruelty and unfairness of life, dealing him a bad hand. He says, I'm ready to be offered for the cause of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God. The time is here and I'm ready. As I began to think about this thought, I was reminded of a little book, and if you can ever get it, it'll help you, by a man named Herbert Lockyer. And it's entitled, All the Last Words of Saints. And sinners. And in it, Mr. Lockyer chronicles the last words of both infidels and heroes of the faith. And I got that book out and I began to look through it. And there's so many that I would have loved to have jotted down. But can I read to you just a few of them, just in closing, that I read? And tell me that God doesn't give us grace to meet the end of our road. It's a supernatural thing. But I promise you, God won't abandon you when that time comes. God's walked with you every step of the way. He won't abandon you then. Listen to the testimony of these saints. John Bunyan, who millions know 
from Pilgrim's Progress. They heard these words that this man pinned down from the Bedford jail. When it came time for Mr. Bunyan to die, he said, Weep not for me, but for yourselves. He said, I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will no doubt, through the mediation of His blessed Son, receive me, though a sinner, when I hope we shall ere long meet to sing the new song and remain everlastingly happy world without end. Amen. David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Indians, who had much suffering in his life, said this as he was leaving this world. He said, He will come. Well, who will come? Jesus will come. He says, He will come and will not tarry. I shall soon be in glory, soon be with God and His angels. John Wesley, who grabbed two continents and shook them, said this, the best of all. Oh, I like this. Before he closed his eyes, he said, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. William Gadsby, famous preacher, preached tens of thousands of times, said this, he said, I shall soon be with Him. Victory, victory, victory. And then raising his hand, he said, forever. Sometimes we think this whole shouting thing's a new invention. <laughs> there on his deathbed, he couldn't see the end of a battle, but he could see the victory that he was entering into. Adoniram Judson One of the most famous missionaries of all time, missionary to Burma, went seven years without a convert, lost three wives on the mission field, but kept serving God when the time of his death came. He said, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. He said, I feel so strong in Christ. Catherine Booth, wife of General William Booth of the Salvation Army, said this, and and I'm not a big fan of her, but I just liked it so much I couldn't help. She said, the waters are rising But so am I. She said, I'm not going under, but over. George Whitfield, preacher in the fields, hundreds of thousands came to know Christ under his preaching, said, Lord Jesus, I'm weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields. Seal the truth and come home to die. D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists of all time, said this, I see earth receding, heaven is opening, God is calling me. The psalmist said, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of His saints. When that time comes, God gives us what we need. He's given us what we've needed every step of the way. (laughs) He won't falter or fail us then. There'll be grace for every hour. And maybe tonight you have a need in your heart and life. And can I make you a promise that there's grace for that need? And God's willing to meet with you. Why don't you come to the throne room? Not my throne room. I don't have a throne room. But go to that throne room of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need.